Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us again for our COVID-19 CHEST webinar series. It is our honor and privilege to welcome three amazing panelists, and Sai, our, our uh, guest of honor, is back. Uh, so I'm going to ask all of you to kindly introduce yourselves and also give us a glimpse into what it's been like taking care of COVID-19 patients at your respective care settings and how did your facilities prepare for this? So Sheila, let's get started with you. Hello, everybody. At the outset, I'd like to thank uh, the organizers and just uh, for this uh, opportunity to speak at this uh, webinar. Uh, it's indeed a great honor and a pleasure to be here to share our experiences. So I'm uh, Sheila Maitra, Professor of uh, Critical Care, working at the Tata Memorial Hospital uh, in Mumbai, India. Uh, I'm also the president of the All India Difficult Airway Association. I chair the um, uh, intensive, uh, the critical care section of the World Federation of Societies of Anesthesiologists. And I've recently been elected as the president-elect 2022 of the Indian Society of Critical Care Medicine. So that's just a bit of a background. Now I work at the Tata Memorial Hospital and some of you may know this hospital. It is one of Asia's uh, largest cancer hospitals and one of the largest cancer hospitals in the world in terms of numbers. So for us, the, uh, the pandemic has been really challenging because cancer, as you know, is a, a semi-emergency. And um, you know we've been operating through the pandemic uh, because, you know, the patient said, you know, it's okay if um, we can't have our surgeries delayed and we can't be dying of cancer. We don't mind getting COVID, but we can't be dying of cancer. So we had to continue to operate through the pandemic. So our operating rooms were running. And because of this, the surgical intensive care units were full, cancer therapies were on. So it was really challenging, you know, striking this balance between, um, uh, you know, utilizing the critical care resources for cancer patients uh, versus, uh, you know, doing this for the uh, operating room. And we only look after, looked after cancer patients who had COVID. Nevertheless, when the second wave, when the number of cases became very high, uh, the municipal corporation actually requested us to look at even, you know, into non-COVID patients. So in this sense, uh, it's been really challenging and there's a lot of experiences and uh, learning between the first and second wave, which of course I'm sure we'll uh, speak as we go along. So this is what I'd like to tell you about uh, the unique aspects of our hospital. Thank you, Sheila. And Deepak? Yeah, thank you very much, Neha, for giving this opportunity and inviting me here. My name is Deepak Govil. I'm working at Medanta the Medicity. It's in Gurgaon, it's suburb of Delhi. Uh, not suburb, it's like a, a satellite town of uh, NCR, Delhi in India. Uh, I'm working in a hospital which uh, is a big hospital, close to 1,200 beds with around 300 critical care beds. I'm working there as a director of critical care. I'm looking after liver transplant, gastrointensive care, and thoracic intensive care. Uh, as far as the preparation is, like first wave came as a bang. That time, nobody was that much prepared, of course. We heard a lot of stories from the Italian colleagues and Chinese colleagues. So mentally somewhat we were prepared. Our hospital was first hospital in India to have COVID patients in first wave because if you remember, there were some Italian tourists who were the initial people who were diagnosed as COVID. They were shifted to our hospital. So one floor was converted to COVID area and it was there. And then since April 2020, then the COVID patients started coming in. But that is an old story coming to the second wave. 
in january february we almost closed down the uh, covid thing this year hardly one intensive care unit was running with the covid patients and suddenly in the march uh, gush of patients started coming in and within no time in 2 3 days we have to convert almost 200 beds of the critical care to the covid icus and it was really a tough cha- um, task because this time lot many other patients were there in the hospital so we have to occupy all the day care post op pre op area because surgeries were off so we covered took over all the areas and converted them to the big shift icus and we shifted our routine patients in that area because we don't want to shift that time it was decided not to shift the covid patients near the theater because uh, emergency surgeries were going on so we thought that their ahu is common so we should uh, shift our normal non covid patients to that area so that was there and at the peak we were having close to uh, 17180 covid patients in the all icus and uh, i remember one day that time more than 100 patients were on ventilator and we practically they now ran out of the ventilator so we procured all the transport ventilators from for mri emergency blah 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 and we converted them to icu ventilators so thank you deepak what you're describing both uh, sheila and deepak the challenges of taking care of patients with covid-19 and the non covid-19 population how do we continue providing the highest level of care for both of these uh, patient populations and um, the surprise first wave and then how did india tackle its second wave will we'll do a deeper dive into it uh, in just a moment and rahul let's give you uh, let's give you a few words in Yeah, hi everyone. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Neha and uh, the team at Chest uh, for the kind invitation. It's a pleasure to be here and interact with everybody. I am the odd man out here. I am an ENT surgeon uh, in a crowd of critical care specialists, and uh, uh, the first wave had uh, you know very little contribution from our side in terms of precautions uh, for the sick patients. But with the second wave, which took us by surprise by seeing a lot of uh, the invasive fungal sinusitis wave that we have seen the mucomycosis wave that we have seen i work in a suburb of mumbai uh, in two tertiary care hospitals hirandani hospital and holy spirit hospital both have been at the forefront of covid uh, and i think in combined over the last year and a half these hospitals have seen uh, close to 15000 covid patients of all severities so uh, they have been at the start of the pandemic right before the first lockdown uh they had the systems in place they had the team in place so uh, managing covid patients uh, uh, was a primacy we were literally out of work during the first wave so to say because the entire hospital was taken over but the second wave is something that unfortunately we got to see a lot of uh, the complications of covid so to say and the mucormycosis was a real surprise the show well, i think we just lost your audio a little bit yeah so i was saying yeah. that uh, that the mucormycosis wave actually caught us by surprise uh, when we were like you know just seeing these patients uh, of something of a rare condition uh, which uh, we were seeing like you know almost uh, 100x of what we were seeing say in the pre covid era so i'll be happy to share my experience with mucormycosis uh, uh, when the time comes looking forward to the discussions thank you so much and all three of you have described very uh, in some ways similar care settings they're large they're taking care of a lot of patients they're on the front lines um 
With respect to the Indian healthcare setting, there are a lot of different uh, ways in which we're delivering care in India. Uh, could could uh, would love to hear from all three of you about the different healthcare settings and what challenges do these different healthcare settings pose and the the sort of rural urban divide does it does it make it challenging does it make it any easier when you're tackling a pandemic like covid-19 so sheila let's start with you right a uh, very important question you raised nia as you are aware there's a wide variation in clinical practice across the country and you have some of the best of setups and private setups like where dr gobel works you have government institutions and you have very small facilities so um, the care really varies depending upon where you are being treated and this is a challenge and the biggest challenge really for india and what we were really afraid of was the infrastructure not only in terms of equipment but also a manpower though uh, we are a very big country and we have a large number of doctors and nurses when you look at it per thousand population the numbers are really minuscule so the the biggest fear actually when we saw this happening in china and italy was that you know how are we going to ramp up for this situation firstly being unaware of the disease itself and how it's going to pan out but uh, not being able to so this was a big concerns about the resource um, you know the resource crunch that we are facing and how would we manage this you know we have such few ventilators the nurses the doctors so uh, in the beginning of the pandemic one of the best things that happened i think was the lockdown though it was quite uh, political because we had uh, our cases actually started to rise after 15th of may so we had two months to prepare it was one of the biggest lockdowns in the history of the planet i mean locking down 1.35 billion people was not a joke but it was a very strict lockdown and i think that served us very well because what we did in two months we were observing what was happening in the west we were seeing what was happening in italy in uk and we were sharing our experiences and trying to learn from them and then we were trying to ramp up our infrastructure every hospital was advised to double their beds make private facilities even things like personal protective equipment was uh, in great shortage uh, testing was uh, only available in certain labs so i think we utilized this two months uh, really well and also prevented the spread so i think in the first wave uh, honestly despite having very limited resources we kind of you know learned from the experiences and we kind of got around with uh, you know managing reasonably well we didn't have that kind of a situation that we had in the second wave which of course we'll uh, talk about so this was the challenge in the beginning was not knowing much about the disease and also the limited infrastructure which the two months uh, gave us good time uh, to prepare and uh, deepa so i second the majority of the things what sheila said i just wanted to add about you talk about the rural and urban divide so it is not that rural and urban divide exists it it is also there in the metropolitan cities like if you go to one particular area it has got very shabby type of uh, old nursing homes and in a particular area there is a like a plush hospital which one can compare with any western facility so that divide exists everywhere not only in the rural and urban but the thing is in the first wave everybody was there and nobody knew what to do what happened in the second wave the number of patients rose suddenly so many that it was difficult to manage at that point of time i remember when in the first wave we started opening icus gradually but in second wave i was like um, we were running two icus 44 beds of 
um, uh, COVID patients and suddenly in the morning there were 20 patients in the ER and ER was calling frantically and we thought that we'll open another ICU. We shifted patients in two hours and by 11 we were ready to take patients and believe me by evening all 22 beds were full. So in the night we uh, emptied another ICU and converted it to COVID. So second wave was much more challenging and people were with the social media, people were aware about it. So many more patients came to ICUs and came to hospital. And there were many patients, people who were not actually deserving the hospital care, but they, out of fear, out of uh, whatever you can say, because they can afford the hospital, they landed up in the hospital and they started calling frantically through any uh, uh, known person or from politicians, from bureaucrats that give a bad, give a bad. So that was another challenge. Then there was a resource crunch. Suddenly you imagine if an ICU is having uh, the all the ICUs were designed like in my hospital, we have got close to 160 ventilators, but rarely they work together. Just imagine now every 300 patients are on oxygen therapy with HFNC, NIV, ventilators, all running with 100% FiO2. So just imagine what is going to happen with the oxygen. So that was the another challenge. That's it. Great. So I'm just going to jump in and ask Sheila a difficult question because she likes difficult airways. I'm just kidding. But it's a, I'm just going to, so I, I do a critical care uh, for India and the US. I do remote intensive care. And one of the things I have noticed is that airway management is key to the COVID pandemic in terms of saving lives. So Sheila, I've heard some of your lectures. I mean, you have amazing insight into the airway management, uh, the complete pathway that's involved. So what do you think would be like three top things that we should follow in terms of airway management of a COVID patient? And is there any way that this can be taught to people who are not intensivists, who are not anesthesiologists, but who are plain either basic medical degree doctors? Can you teach this to them? And how long would it take? Because it's just a two-part question. Your tips for airway management and what do you think would be a quick way to teach them if another pandemic comes through? Right. Uh, I think this is a very relevant question. COVID being primarily a respiratory disease, you know, the airway management is really the key. And um, this has been very challenging because all along when we did airway management, we were only concerned about patient safety. For the first time, we had to also think about the healthcare worker safety. And tracheal intubation being an aerosol generating procedure, I mean, we really had to think about how are you going to protect the healthcare worker and the, uh, you know, make keep the patient safe. So this became like a, a, a big challenge. And as president of the All India Difficult Area Association, I mean, we really had to very quickly come up with guidelines as to how we would, uh, you know, handle safe uh, the airway safely and keep the uh, airway manager safe. So um, the thing that was paramount is to uh, optimize first pass intubation success. So you can shorten the time uh, so that the exposure is also less and also reduce the complications. And uh, you know, to do this, you have to have an experienced airway operator. So uh, whoever, you cannot get the, uh, the, the most experienced one at any time in the day or night, but whoever in your team is the most experienced operator should be the one intubating. It should not be just anyone. And uh, the other thing is that when you use video laryngoscopes, and this is one area where video laryngoscopes really score above direct laryngoscopes, because you don't have to look into the oral cavity, go close to the oral cavity, and you can actually be looking at the uh, screen. In addition, video laryngoscopy also has 
a higher chance of first pass success. So these were two uh, kind of interventions that were really, really helpful. Of course, you may have heard about the intubation boxes that were initially being used. And it all started with, uh, you know, I can understand that it started with good intentions because people were, you know, concerned about protecting the airway operator. But and in a country like India, where manufacture is cheap and there's all kinds of innovation, we had all kinds of boxes and people trying to, you know, hold your for getting their hands in. This made intubation difficult. This increased the time. This, uh, you know, PPV used to take. And I was so happy when we finally had evidence to show that these boxes actually cause harm. And when you remove the boxes, it actually exposes the operator to a higher concentration of uh, the aerosol. There was so much discussion on the intubation boxes. Uh, you know, on social media, it actually became more viral than the virus itself. So uh, initially we were using it, but then now in the second wave, we completely did away with it. And I would say you need to limit the number of people who are around, you know, sometimes when you have a challenging intubation, especially like this in a COVID patient, you may want to have a few more operators, but you have to limit the number of operators to one or maximum two, because you want to expose less uh, of your staff. Now a negative pressure isolation, I mean, it's not feasible. But a lot of units were doing the intubation in, uh, for example, if you had one negative pressure uh, room, you would intubate the patient there and then transport to the other room. But this is not feasible and not practical. And as we went along the pandemic, we realized that more than any of this, it is your personal protective equipment uh, that is going to uh, safeguard you. And you should do your usual practices with airway management to ensure patient safety. So uh, rather than avoid, like we were not using high flow, we were not using NIV, we were not doing these things in the beginning of the pandemic, we were intubating patients very early. So all these practices really completely changed uh, over time. So uh, I would say with airway management, laryngoscope, and having the most experienced operator in your team. Regarding training, I would say, um, you know, uh, at times like these, when we have lesser number of cases, simulation-based training uh, is very helpful. Training people with mannequins. It's difficult to make people experts in airway management overnight and tracheal intubation, but definitely they could assist. They could be the runners. They could be, you know, so these kind of things, definitely not only um, ICU staff and ED staff, but also other specialities could help uh, in this uh, process. So I think all sh this should be done at a time when you have fewer cases. And simulation-based training in every management is definitely uh, the way forward. Sheila, both Deepak have touched upon so many important themes around resource management. Resource management, both the equipment, the beds, the, the way we organize care, and the way we're training people who are not just intimately associated or or taking care of critically ill patients, but also how do we prepare people to, to do this in a, in a safe manner, protecting the healthcare worker, uh, particularly in the midst of a pandemic. We can't even imagine how hard it must have been to ramp up some of these resources, particularly given that some of the settings were already resource limited, like Deepak highlighted. And that's that's been a theme for, for the US, that's been a theme for several parts of the world. And despite us, um, despite us being aware of these healthcare disparities before the pandemic, I think it's really shining uh, a massive light on, on these healthcare disparities, which has just been magnified by the pandemic. Um, Sai, uh, you have some, uh, some great experience with uh, tele-ICU resources. Would, would uh, love to hear some comments from you about how tele-ICU resources were ramped up for COVID-19 in India and beyond. Sure. 
Sure. Thanks, Nia. So I work at Apollo Hospitals, uh, and I also do remote intensive care for India and on for the U.S. And what we realized is, I mean, I was doing night shifts for the U.S., and it was exceedingly busy. Imagine managing 120 ARDS patients. It was it was very busy, and you had to you know, just do stuff, and you can't really take any shortcuts because these are young people. And unfortunately, it's happening again now. The unvaccinated young people are, and, and some older people are again having a very bad lung disease in the U.S. right now. But I think one of the things we've realized is that uh, the resources in India especially, you have plenty of doctors. In other countries, you have plenty of nurses who are very well trained. You have plenty of respiratory therapists. But in India, you don't have that many respiratory therapists at all. You don't have that many nurses who can do critical care. But I think, uh, you know, kudos to ICCM for really training and ramping up people in both of those areas. Uh, what I've realized is that if we can actually do quick training, and we we were able to do ventilator training through my hospital, we were able to do a lot of uh, webinars as well as direct hands-on experience with troubleshooting ventilators, troubleshooting ventilator alarms to avoid transfers of patients. So this, you know, the rural patient who gets in an ambulance is almost certainly going to die. So kind of they avoid using remote care, and actually. You, uh, you were at Mount Sinai, right? Uh, what was it like New York in the first place? Was it anything like what we saw in India? Do you remember any of that anymore? Absolutely. Uh, we ran uh, the second COVID ICU at Mount Sinai. Uh, and a lot of the things that both Deepak and Sheila were describing, quickly ramping things up, converting ICUs to COVID ICUs. Uh, in some ways, I do feel very grateful that I was at... Um, you know, at a health system that had access to a lot of resources, we were able to convert all of our ICU rooms into negative pressure rooms. So even at, during the first wave, when we didn't know a lot about this disease process and aerosolization and how much we need to protect the healthcare worker as well, what kind of PPE do we need? Uh, at no point in time did, did uh, uh, several of us feel like we we. Uh, we were not going to have enough. Uh, while there was all this modeling that uh, that was very scary, particularly during the first wave uh, when New York became the epicenter, I think we were we were very fortunate. And for a lot of our colleagues, even across the across the U.S., uh, particularly after the first wave that we experienced, it was it was rough. It was exactly as you described, um, with with a. Uh, with this constant fear that you're going to run out of resources and people who are trained to to be able to provide the kind of care that that needs to be provided. Sure. I'm going to direct a quick question to Dr. Govil and Sheila and to Rahul. How do we avoid subglottic stenosis? What are the practical tips in terms of two things we should do when we are using those endotracheal tubes? Because Rahul, I'm sure you're starting to see some of those now. So, uh, we are seeing more in prolonged intubation. So, uh, in patients in which we expect, uh, you know, uh, a stormy course, a prolonged course, I think early tracheostomy has always been the gold standard to avoid that subglottic stenosis. Apart from that, I think uh, uh, smaller size tubes and uh, monitoring cuff pressures and uh, uh, maintaining good oral hygiene, which which have been the traditional ways of preventing subglottic stenosis, but in the pandemic. You know, uh, with the, the healthcare resource personnel, the ICU personnel being overwhelmed, it has always been a challenge. So, I mean, fortunately, at our institutes, uh, the place that I am practicing, we have kept uh, a very low threshold, in fact, to do an early tracheostomy. So, we are not seeing that many subglottic stenosis. Uh, 
but uh, we have seen a couple of them uh, who were managed elsewhere and there was a delay in tracheostomy uh, but none of them were very severe uh, and they are just recovering now so just with conservative management we are planning to uh, you know treat them Correct. i just like to Thank add uh, if i may uh, so this was um, though i just saw one or two cases this was a concern in some areas one of the reasons was because of the very early intubations especially in the beginning of the pandemic uh you know because um, you know at that time we really didn't understand the disease and people would see a patient with uh, you know low p2f ratio these very scary ct scans and uh, you know later we started going purely clinically if there wasn't increased work of breathing there weren't signs of respiratory distress we would allow them to you know the so called happy hypoxics we would just not intubate them but in the beginning of the pandemic we were intubating them very early and the other concern was about extubating so people want extubating early because they were worried that if i extubate too early then again reintubation will again expose the healthcare worker so they a lot of extubations were also delayed so like uh, rahul rightly said there was a lot of prolonged uh, period of tracheal intubation cuff size and a lot of un uh, units because of the uh, manpower constraints were not able to do cuff pressure monitoring and all the routine things that we do every management really went for a toss then he gave even uh, the timing of uh, tracheostomy was debated uh you know and there was a delphi on that and then uh you know so these kind of things definitely led to prolonged intubation so i think now with a better understanding we are intubating patients not early not late but at the right time i would say and uh, we are not uh, worried about extubating patients because we are transitioning high risk patients to using high flow nasal cannula oxygen or extubating them on niv which we weren't doing in early in the pandemic when we weren't using these two therapies so i think this has definitely uh shorten the duration of tracheal intubation and uh, also concerns about tubes some people were putting larger size tubes you know because they were a little concerned that you know there shouldn't be any leaks and you know concerns like this i mean i just saw some people talking about this but, uh, so these kind of things may have definitely led to a higher incidence of tracheal uh, stenosis of course earlier in the pandemic a lot of misinformation a lot of uh, fear and that fear getting channeled into deviating us from practices that have been well established evidence based for uh, ARDS from non covid-19 uh, viruses and instances but overall um, all three of you in some ways have alluded to uh, information management and uh, how uh, social media and how do we how do we ensure that in the midst of a pandemic for a country as massive as india how do we ensure that there isn't uh, this propagation of misinformation and timely information is available to people to make the right decisions at the right time ila would you like to start okay so uh, i think social media can be both uh, uh, you know beneficial as well as it can be very dangerous i can tell you that i read many things on social media and i it really helped me but on the other side uh, side like you're saying there was a lot of propagation of misinformation so one thing for india especially with technology i think all of us learned how to use uh, zoom and learn to use these platforms so communication became much much easier and i think societies like the indian society of critical care medicine and other societies you know um, uh, took the lead in uh, you know generating guidelines disseminating information so i think as long as people uh, you know uh, reach out to authorized um, you know associations or bodies 
uh, to get this information, it's fine. You can have no control on this WhatsApp university and this kind of uh, misinformation. So I really would leave it to the individual, but I think they should go to authorized uh, sites, you know, like the national uh, uh, sites that we have in the government sites and uh, also the, uh, you know, the associations uh, so that they are sure that the information that they're getting is, uh, you know, been vetted through people and is reliable. So uh, can I say something? So the social media played very important role, uh, but side by side, as Dr. Sheila has highlighted, it was a misinformation campaign as well. I can just recount one thing, that in the previous first wave, I used to receive calls from different uh, people, maybe doctor, paramedical, patients relative, that do you have a ventilator available in your hospital? And in the second wave, things reversed. And people started asking, do you have ECMO available? How can we procure ECMO? Few people even uh, offered to buy the ECMO, offered to rent the ECMO. They started asking the company's name that where from where we can buy the ECMO machine. And few people started calling like a call center. So they like a, probably there were some NGOs or young enthusiastic boys and girls who started calling like a call center that I'm calling from X place. We have got one patient. Do you have ECMO bed available? And they were not even too ready to listen that ECMO bed is not so uh, small thing. Like we have to first uh, evaluate the patient, whether the patient is for ECMO or not. And later on, I realized that many patients were not even intubated and they were asking for ECMO beds. So this was the uh, ugly face of misinformation there. Uh, one of the challenges, uh, if I may just interject, uh, that we faced is uh, in the first wave, so to say, we had uh, probably lesser number of patients and lesser doctors involved in the care. Uh, when the second wave came in, we have, uh, you know, patient, doctors from all specialities and doctors from all, uh, I would say, even alternate medicine joining us. And that added a little bit to the confusion. So uh, the thing that we probably should take as a message uh, as the community treating uh, patients is to, you know, try and adhere to guidelines as much as possible and uh, not so much uh, as to uh, whatever works for me, works for me kind of a culture. So that was uh, an important message for everybody that uh, the state governments, the national government was coming out with guidelines, uh, but uh, there was very uh, high level of reluctance initially to follow them. And then uh, there was good adherence to that. Thanks, Rahul. So I think, you know, I'm just going to preface this next statement with a little bit of a plug for CHEST. And, you know, CHEST has been doing these webinars. They're a global organization. They've been talking about uh, education, et cetera. If you go to their website, they have an entire COVID section. And they started pretty early. And people like Neha and her team, the digital people, they've been actually you know, updating it very regularly. In India, each of our hospitals, has done, for example, my hospital, did a, we have the 45th edition of our COVID guidelines for the whole country, which we use. So there's been a lot of good work. But I'm going to ask Deepak this question because you guys have done an amazing job through ICCM through the journal, through your website, and all the different you know, protocols and committees you've instituted. I'm not going to ask you about those specifically, but Deepak, what drove you to get there? Because this is very forward thinking, and you guys jumped on the you know what needs to be done very quickly in the pandemic. What do you think drove you to do that? Uh, it was the need of time, and it is not everybody was uh, of the same opinion that society should come forward and do uh, whatever they can do. And I'm quite happy and I'm very lucky to have a group of dedicated doctors 
people like Sheila and others who are with us here today. And everybody, uh, despite of being too busy in the patient care, took out the time to come up all these things. So there were many policies and uh, guidelines or position papers and published in our website. We did uh, regular webinars. Last year, we conducted so many training sessions uh, for uh, paramedics, non-medics, and uh, especially the non-intensivist, along with the Indian Medical Association local branches. So we conducted more than 25 webinars in different uh, areas of India. And uh, we, conduct, uh, we prepared few modules of oxygen therapy, ventilation, that was jointly, Dr. Sai was also part of that modules. He mm, took his time off and um, recorded his lecture and was part of that team also. So we did so many things and uh, believe me, it was not a single person who did it, it was the whole society, whole executive committee, whole like-minded people, all the intelligentsia, they suddenly came together. We don't have to call anybody. People used to call us that, why you are not doing this? I can do this. So whenever I get a call, we always say, if you can do this, please go ahead. Please go ahead. So it was like, it was an enthusiasm and dedication of all the members, not a single person, I would say. That's very great. And Sheila, I think you're going to be carrying this forward for the coming year, right? I hope so. So I'd just like to add, uh, I think one of the positives, like they say, every cloud has a silver lining. One of the positives is that COVID has really been a unifying experience. You know, it's kind of, especially in India, and I'm sure globally as well, because it's got a lot of uh, people and, uh, you know, together and uh, something, a disease we don't really know too much about. Let's share our experiences. Let's learn from each other. That kind of feeling. And though it's unfortunate today we are, uh, you know, online and we can't be physically meeting, I've met up with more people online uh, globally than I would have ever imagined. So I think webinars like this are organized by CHEST where we can uh, share our experiences, learn from each other, and also, uh, you know, share data. And uh, also, I have been able to, you know, really collaborate with people and do global publications on COVID, which I haven't been able to do before COVID. I mean, I didn't have to wait for COVID for this to happen. But because of, uh, you know, being able to meet people online and not having to travel and spend money and have meetings uh, physically has been actually one of the uh, positives because without spending much money, we've had exchange of uh, knowledge and also education because I think these kind of uh, webinars where you learn from each other's experiences and you share, um, you have educational material put out. I think this is really useful. And I wouldn't say just for the pandemic, but I would say this is something that we should uh, carry forward even when there isn't a pandemic so that you know, we can have these kind of uh, webinars and we know this is feasible and more people are now tuned to this kind of um, you know, online uh, meetings. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I'm just gonna segue right into the next kind of theme that actually we've been getting some audience questions about this. Mm -hmm. you know, what does India need to do in terms of infrastructure, in terms of training? What kind of upgrades do you need to do to our healthcare? So if you had a wish list to say, you know what, in the next 30 days, you can do what you want to India's healthcare, what would you want to do? Wish list is a very long wish list. It is difficult <laughs> to, <laughs> it will take hours to do. But of course, the biggest wish list is to uh, train our junior doctors, train our colleagues, and not only that, train our paramedics, because nothing can happen without paramedics. And this um, pandemic has shown us 
that we are nothing without our paramedic support, without our junior doctor support, because nobody, single person cannot do anything. Though gone those days where there used to be a professor or boss used to take a round in the ICU and 10 people are following him and he is barking orders and everybody is following. We find that it's impossible in the pandemic days. So unless we train our paramedics, unless we train our junior doctors, nothing can happen. That is the uh, topmost list in my wish list. Of course, there are so many other things. The infrastructure, the um, reaching out to the rural area, blah, 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 so many things. But if you have asked two things, I'd say the first thing is to train our paramedics and train our junior doctors. I'd just like to add uh, over here, and one thing that COVID taught me, looking at, I saw the best healthcare systems across the globe in the most developed countries collapsed during COVID. And this made me realize that no matter what infrastructure you have, how many beds you have, how many doctors, you have to prevent the disease in the community. If you have this big wave coming into the hospital, no matter how well you've equipped, you've already lost the battle. So I think it's very important first for uh, public health measures to be reinforced and prevent this from coming. Because once the patients have started coming to the ICU, and this especially we noticed in the second wave, so I think we have to prevent this first. And this is where governments, healthcare organizations, and all have to play a, play a key role rather than say, okay, now the patients are coming, ramp up your facility. How much are you going to ramp up? Why did uh, the most developed world with the maximum number of ventilators also collapse? Is because no interest, healthcare infrastructure can handle uh, this kind of situation when you have such a surge. But having said this, I feel definitely one important area, we can't just expect doctors and nurses and intensivists alone to do all this. What we have to do is we have to use all the other specialities. And during times when there's a lull, we have to really uh, train, like uh, Dr. Deepak rightly said, even paramedical staff, uh, you know, we had uh, surgeons on board, we had physicians on board. So you can train them for certain activities where you can help you. And the third very important message I want to give is don't lose your guard. Because I think in the second wave, we suffered because we were very complacent. You know, what happened in India is unlike in the other countries, we had a very long first wave. People were completely, you know, exhausted. We started in May and then till December, this went on. And finally, in Jan, when the cases were almost negligible, we felt, look, we were a country with limited infrastructure, less resources, and we managed so well and our mortality wasn't too high. So we became very complacent and we, you know, when the vaccines came in January, mid-January, there was a lot of vaccine hesitancy because people thought a second wave would not come. So I think the biggest mistake we made is uh, losing our guard. And the second wave, uh, of course, it may be also, it was also variant dependent, but the sudden surge like Deepak uh, described in two, three days and, you know, 10 times more the requirement of oxygen and all this was something we just uh, couldn't handle. So while we do need to improve our infrastructure, both in terms of manpower as well as material, I feel the most important thing is to prevent this in the community and not let it come into the hospital. You're, absolutely. You're, I mean, really, really important point, right, Sai? These are, yeah, absolutely. despite you describing this for the Indian context, it is so applicable to every country in the world, irrespective of what, what types of resources we have. And not forgetting the lessons we've learned in the midst of the pandemic, the investment in public health, particularly for developed nations like the US, we haven't been paying as much attention to public health simply because prevention is so much harder to do than when you're in the midst of a crisis, let's buckle down and take care of the crisis. But what do we do to create sustainable solutions so that we don't run back into this? Uh, some of the 
the preventable mortality that we all ran into and how do we prepare for the next pandemic, right? Uh, Sai and Rahul, this is, this is probably one of the biggest challenges for us while you're in the midst of a crisis, how do you prepare for the next crisis? Because this is not going to be the last pandemic of our lifetime. So uh, Rahul, quick segue to you about the second wave. Um, I, we, we heard from Sheila some of the, some of the potential missteps that, that India, India made for the second wave. And you saw this big surge of mucomycosis and, and um, a destructive sinusitis. So comments about that. Was this preventable and what can be done about it? So uh, surprisingly, just a quick observation, uh, the hospitals and there is actually some published data to back this up also. Um, so none of the so-called tertiary care hospitals that are there kind of like, you know, in my knowledge, uh, uh, so close to managing about 25,000 patients of all severities, we didn't get a single mucormycosis patient in-house. Okay, so most of the patients that we saw were treated in sort of a resource-constrained setting where you would expect the personal, you know, the, the doctor-patient ratio, the nurse-patient ratio, uh, to be not to the greatest, you know, not to the best levels. So I strongly feel a large number of, uh, if not all, a large number of these uh, mucormycosis patients were perhaps preventable because uh, initially there was a lot of hesitancy in the first wave in using the glucocorticoids or the steroids per se, and they came in a little late in the wave. And uh, But in the second wave, it was... You know, everybody was on steroids. I mean, whether it was a young individual who was not even requiring oxygen, was treated at home, was also prescribed steroids. And then in other settings, it was very difficult for them to monitor sugar perhaps. So I think the biggest lessons for us is uh, not to uh, forget our basics, not forget uh, the basics of management and uh, to ensure that, you know, we are able to maintain a basic level of care to prevent this from happening. So uh, that's uh, the basic question. And, you know, mucormycosis has been a challenge as to, um, is it only the steroids? There was a lot of myth in social media about, uh, you know, the industrial oxygen use uh, causing uh, the mucormycosis spread. And there was no data to back this up. And even till today, and everybody was blaming, I mean, the COVID Delta variant to cause some special changes in the body's immunity. Yes, COVID induced uh, immune dysregulation is uh, kind of documented. But I mean, all these major centers uh, in Mumbai, which had, uh, you know, huge thousands of patients admitted, they had the same COVID variant and they were able to escape uh, the mucormycosis. And I think mucormycosis was just one of the list of the many secondary infections that happened to our COVID patients. So to the same, uh, you know, good care, uh, just basic good sugar monitoring and just making the patient aware, you know, of the early signs and symptoms uh, could have prevented uh, the sheer scale of it. And that is where the rural and the urban divide came in. You know, patient centers which had a lot of rural drainage had the maximum impact. You talk about Nagpur, you talk about Pune, you talk about Jaipur. These centers, Aurangabad, these had the maximum number of mucormycosis patients compared to the patients that were there in Mumbai and how many mucormycosis cases were there. So uh, that's my take on it. I just Thanks, to add uh, Rahul. Go ahead, about, uh, coming from a cancer center. So when we saw this kind of mucormycosis uh, epidemic kind of happening, we, we'd seen cases of mucormycosis, but not like this. 
and we didn't have a single case in our hospital so i really strongly believe it is dependent on the usage of steroids the dose of steroids and other immunosuppressant therapies uh, people because people were so worried about not getting an icu bed or going on oxygen they were actually using uh, steroids to prevent uh, you know getting into hospitals people were taking steroids at home so there was a lot of indiscriminate use of steroids and i think this may have largely contributed but institutes where uh, the st uh, sugars were tightly monitored and also the steroid there was control on how much dose as well as uh, the indication for giving steroids they didn't really see much uh, mucomycosis so there was a wide variation in the distribution though the number was of cases were high and the government actually declared it as an epidemic thank you shila and rahul you know if we really look back this is the war of our generation I mean, we hear about the world wars, but this is what it is. And the innovation that's come out, the compassion that's come out. I mean, these are all things which will stick with us for the rest of our lives. But I, and I'm so you know privileged and thank Aniha and Chest for this opportunity to meet leaders like yourself, Sheila and Deepak and Rahul, to really share your insights because you know it's very important for an entire generation that's following us, looking at up at you as teachers and leaders, to really follow in your footsteps. and while they do follow in your footsteps many of them are staying up at night they're working long hours and they are exhausted i'm sure you're all exhausted and i think this burnout concept is you know we are doctors we don't burn out but we do and i'm just going to ask each of you for a you know one point as to you know how do you avoid burnout but we're reading at you know right at 45 minutes it's like a good netflix episode is right gone through and we're at 45 minutes and uh, we have just a little bit of time left but if you can just tell us you know what would you think we should do to avoid burnout and right after that i'm going to ask you a much more in, you know important question on the ethics of care how do we deal with it these are tough questions which don't have answers but how do we actually do that so i'm going to start with shila if you want to go ahead and tell us how do you deal with burnout so you know this is a very very important topic that you've raised and something that was very very neglected through the pandemic because we were just so busy uh you know uh trying to figure out what treatments to do and manage our infrastructure and resources that you know uh thinking about burnout or dealing with burnout was very very far from our mind and in india it was specifically it was very relevant because we had a very long uh first wave we didn't have even a summer holiday people were not going on leave the other very challenging thing was that we didn't have families coming into the intensive care unit because of limited uh, ppe and also concerns about uh, infecting the uh, relatives etc so doctors were watching patients uh, dying in isolation they were watching um, you know uh, having to deal with the aspects various aspects of the family was involved with the patient and you know talking to them and the patients were seeing these doctors who all looked alike and there was it was absolutely a, you know not a humane kind of environment and uh, also this fear of getting infected was making doctors you know spend very minimal time with the patient so this whole experience and also doing extra duties extra shifts many colleagues turning positive so you know we were not able to give leave uh, for people and also in india not so much of psychological support uh, for the uh, doctors within all the hospitals or the time for this so all this uh, resulted in significant amount of burnout and i noticed this later when we started talking to our uh, residents and our trainees etc that you know they there are and now we have a lot of published literature on this even internationally about the burnout issues in the uh, icu uh, so i think um, you know though it's not possible to provide so much of psychological support and have this all available overnight 
definitely within departments leadership should take the role of talking to your colleagues you know talk to them assign somebody who can you know talk to about to the residents to the trainees about their well being are you okay have you had enough sleep have you had enough rest and however possible what we started doing is to give people some breaks you know try to work it out in such a way that the work doesn't suffer but give some time off uh, to you know uh, different uh, trainees for a few days so that they you know it will help them uh, rejuvenate so various things can be worked out but definitely uh trying to make uh, you know psychological support available for the staff would be a long term goal that is uh, really uh, been an eye opener with covid that this is something we really need because we need to take care of ourselves also because a human resource is one of the most valuable resource for any uh, healthcare system so if you not only the physical health but also the mental health so this got highlighted i think more in covid and we realized the importance of this in india Sheila, very well said. And incidentally, Chest's next webinar on September thirtieth is going to be about building a community of getting well together. And this is not going to be recorded. These are going to be Zoom breakout rooms. We're going to facilitate some discussion around unpacking, processing some of the the loss, the grieving, the the rush of emotions that all of us had to deal with uh, in the midst of all these various waves or this ongoing massive wave of the pandemic we're still not in a post pandemic world but making sure that all all of our organizations across the world are collaborating to establish some firm guidance on what needs to be done to support one another not just in the midst of a crisis but building that community irrespective of whether we're in the midst of a crisis or not so that we can come out stronger at the end of a crisis um the ethical question that sai was posing uh we we had a lot of talk about will run out of ventilators and then what are we going to do rationing of care um rahul deepak shila how did you deal with that and was that was that a concern yeah sometime it was a concern to me it was a concern not for ventilator not for icu bed sometime like in second wave it was a concern for icu bed i couldn't um uh, like entertain all the calls which i got and even few of my relatives friends doctors friends doctors even my colleagues family i had to say no to them because we were not having beds and the second ethical dilemma was uh, putting atmo that was biggest challenge of the life and believe me it was so difficult to judge whom to put whom not to put there are five or six young guys all requiring ecmo and we don't have got ecmo all the ecmos are running so that was biggest challenge it was sometime very frustrating very difficult to deal with and i remember few of our junior doctors started crying even to do what we can few suggested that we should take out ecmo from this patient and put in this patient this is having least chances of survival i know people started saying that i know in two days he is going to die why don't you take out ecmo from this patient and put on another patient but you know that thing cannot be done and never we did but again it was a very difficult situation to see people are dying thank you for sharing that deepak it it is uh, that tremendous amount of moral injury that comes with having to even think through some of these questions whether we have to act on those or not uh, even the the process of going through the 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 thinking of we may need to do this uh, is very very hard 
And I'm hoping that uh, organizations like uh, the Indian Society of Critical Care Medicine, CHEST, SCCM, ATS, uh, ESICM, and several, several organizations are, are going to bond together to, to help us unpack uh, and process what has happened so that we we don't break down that uh, we as a healthcare community just come out come out stronger. I know we're coming up towards the end of our webinar. We have our last few minutes left and we are going to count on, on uh, all of you for your uh, final words of wisdom and takeaways for the future. Um, how, do we, how do we become stronger and prepare well for the next pandemic? So let's start with you, Rahul. Final words. So uh, my learning from the, the two waves was uh, better communication between the team members. You know, uh, what is that person looking for? Uh, uh, what is my role? And, uh, you know, to help out as much as I can uh, to be supportive to the team leader. So, again, I would go with better communication and keep an eye for, uh, you know, abnormal presentations, so to say. Uh, you know, just keep an eye wider. I mean, I'm thinking after the mucor wave, uh, if the person is post-COVID, has had, like, you know, moderate to a severe course, uh, you know, uh, if he comes with sinusitis symptoms, I'm thinking of mucor now. So keep keep an eye for abnormal presentations. Things will surprise you and be on guard and communicate well. That would be my kind of message to everybody. I would second that. I would say that definitely don't lose your guard. That's what the second wave has uh, taught us. But uh, some, uh, some things that I learned, especially during the second wave, and I felt also through the pandemic, is one of the biggest challenges we faced was communication. Communication with patients and communication with their families really suffered. And uh, I feel in future, we should have, uh, you know, with all this technology, we should have uh, better mechanisms where patients and, uh, you know, relatives, uh, uh, you know, can communicate with their families. Because I watched so many patients dying in isolation and that was a very, uh, you know, it was very disturbing. So I thought we could have done better with communication, even for remote monitoring. We couldn't have so many people going into the unit, but we should have had better facilities like Dr. Sai has highlighted. So these are the areas I feel we can really come up uh, um, uh, you know, with. And the other thing which we were not very well trained for is to cope with surge capacity and also interdisciplinary uh, kind of communication and dialogue because we are in these silos. And I think that's where we have to kind of you know, have this team building and you know, hope for the best, of course, but prepare for the worst. On a medical front uh, from this, uh, you know, right from the beginning where people were debating whether uh, this is an ERDS or not an ERDS, you know, uh, steroids, which we're not uh, uh, routinely using for ARDS, uh, tocilizumab, monoclonal antibodies, these showed uh, promising results in uh, COVID-19 related uh, acute respiratory failure. So perhaps these therapies need to be, uh, you know, uh, re-evaluated or reassessed in non-COVID uh, ARDS. So this is something that uh, has made me really wonder, perhaps there's a role for steroids. So on a medical, you know, for medical management front, definitely. But otherwise, I would say uh, communication and uh, preparing for surge capacity and interdisciplinary communication. Andeepa? Yeah, I second what uh, Rahul and Sheila has said. I don't think so. Uh, there is much to add it. The only thing is that a collaborative uh, theme is needed to how to deal with this. We should have a long-term planning, not a short-term lookout. And these pandemics will come back again. Nobody knows when they will come back again. Maybe a year, two year, five year, 10 year. 
the moment we lose the guard, they will be there. So we have to prepare for them. And it is very difficult to prepare for an unseen thing. You can prepare for a thing which you know that is coming, but it's very difficult. It's very easy to say that we have to prepare, we have to prepare, but it is very difficult to prepare because how much resources can anybody mobilize? Even the Western world, they they failed, almost failed, whatever I say, they failed miserably to cater all their population because all the hospitals, any facility you create is created on the basis of some data, the percentage of the people, how many people are going um, ill every year or something like that. Suddenly then the 10 times patients started coming, it is very difficult. One thing which I can foresee or we can, I can think, you can say it's out of box thinking that like we have a reserve army, we do a practical training of army to uh, people and after short service, they go back to their civilian life and start working there and as a civilian person. And whenever there is a need, army can call back them again. If we can have that type of force, especially for paramedics, that may help in the next pandemic. I don't know whether it's doable or not. I think that's a great idea, Dr. Deepak. And I'm just going to, we've got just a couple of minutes left. I'm just going to close with this quotation someone told me. You know, every day you're learning more, you just have to keep learning more. There's just things you're learning more every day. And even a hundred-year-old lives only for 36,500 days. Time is limited. Time is limited. So we really need to do our best to deliver care for pretty much everybody who needs it. And innovation, technology, science, I mean, all of this has to come together so people who don't have care can actually get it. And these kinds of conversations, we've talked about the theory of science, the theory of airways, we've talked about the pathology of the disease, we've talked about compassion and ethics. It's a beautiful discussion we've had today, and I really appreciate all of you taking your time. I do need a better mask, though. I'm really wondering why hasn't anyone innovated that better N95 mask? So with that, I'm going to give it to Neha, and thank you, Neha, for a wonderful job at uh, coordinating this beautiful webinar. Thank you so much, uh, everyone, for being so generous with your advice, with your time, with, with sharing your perspectives right from science to compassion to ethics, as, as Sai mentioned. Some of the themes that were all prevalent in all of your responses were, was this, this need for fluid collaboration across countries, the need to work together so we can, we can learn from each other's strengths and be able to counter each other's weaknesses. And the you know, it took, it took uh, Sheila, you mentioned for research, these international collaborations, these, these artificial boundaries that we had for data sharing and for, for creating large registries, those were all broken down during COVID-19. So I'm hoping that some of these lessons that we have all learned about collaboration, about working together, about helping each other out in crisis, about understanding our healthcare disparities so that we create safety nets for people who are going to be more vulnerable when our next pandemic arrives. It's, it's just a matter of time and preparing, like Deepak said, preparing for something that we don't know is so much harder, but some of the principles that we have learned those are lifelong principles that we should not forget. So, so grateful for, for everything that you have shared today. And we'll be posting our recording soon to our audience. Thank you so much for being so engaged and posing all your questions. For those of you who missed out, worry not. We have our repository of all of our webinars on Chess website. So please do access those resources. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful Thank day. Thank you very much.